it's possible to say the words, sing the songs, pray the prayers, and go through all the right motions and not know the Savior. Do you know him? This morning we're going to take just a few minutes to cut through the fog and see Jesus for who he really is. And my hope is that as we do, that we'll be led to marvel, we'll be compelled to trust, and move to desire that our lives look more and more like his. The fog was dense. Not the damp, thick, gray, low cloud kind of fog. It was the heart-tugging, wishful thinking, scripture-clouding, truth-altering, really visibility-impairing kind of fog. And the fog wasn't made up of airborne water molecules, but, but thoughts and beliefs and expectations of people. Thousands and thousands of people. Matthew's gospel tells us that there were multitudes. One commentator estimates that there were several hundred thousand of clamoring, road-filling, densely packed people all on their way to the holy city. Their minds were clouded by thoughts of, of that exciting week, the celebration that would be taking place all that week. And yet, overshadowing all of it, is this looming oppression of the current political situation. The occasion was Passover, the annual Jewish festival that brought people back from anywhere and everywhere to gather in the city of Jerusalem for that purpose of commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. 400 years of slavery, they were delivered. God's tenth and final blow to Egypt was to be one that would bring death to the firstborn child of every family in the land. Exodus 11 reads, from the firstborn slave girl, firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there had never been, nor ever will be again. But as wide-sweeping as this night-born terror would be, Israel was promised that they would be the exception. And the only requirement was that each household, on the tenth day of the first month, separate from their herd a spotless lamb. And then on the fourteenth day of the month, they were to kill it. And, and then smear the lintels and doorposts of their homes with its blood. And God said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over before you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. As long as the people had the blood on their doorposts, they were safe. Death would pass over their homes. This was a really big deal. It was the single greatest, most epic event in Israel's history where God miraculously steps into time and space, declares war on the most powerful kingdom on earth, and delivers an oppressed people from slavery to freedom. 
And as these people on their way to celebrate Passover looked back on that event, their thoughts must have been catapulted ahead to dream about how God was going to do something similar again for them. And doubtless, the buzz among many of the people journeying to Jerusalem that day would have been something like, isn't it going to be amazing? Isn't it going to be incredible when God sends that king to deliver us? Like, like when he sent Moses to deliver us from Egypt. The parallels were unmistakable. You couldn't go anywhere without being just keenly aware of Roman oppression. From the architectural monuments to their greatness to their power to the raw military might that was just, it's just everywhere you looked. From the face that appeared on every coin to the heavy taxes that would call those coins back to the authorities from which they came. Signs were everywhere. This wasn't a free Israel. What a great day. What a great day it would be when God would reveal the one who would deliver. Maybe some had fresh in their minds Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but here's what they're gonna say. As the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he has driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Perhaps some just had verses 7 and 8 just rolling around in their heads over and over again thinking, someday, someday God is going to deliver us. He's going to send a deliverer that is going to make Moses and the delivery from Egypt seem like nothing in comparison. But the question is when? And how long do we have to wait? And how much more do we have to put up with? Have you been there? Tired of waiting, tired of wondering, praying over and over again that God would just put an end to whatever the difficult situation may be that you find yourself in. Maybe you come to church week after week, maybe year after year, thinking maybe, maybe this is the week. Maybe this is the year. Today marks the beginning of Holy Week, the time when we draw special attention to celebrate the work that Christ came to accomplish for us. And yet I wonder, are there concerns that weigh heavily on our hearts, clouding our, our thinking, and depleting our joy? The fog was dense. Thousands upon thousands of people were on their way to celebrate God's deliverance, and at the same time, looking forward to that day of deliverance that would one day come. Then, 
the moment comes when amongst the crowd a stir begins to form around a a man riding a young donkey, a colt. And the stir turns to commotion, and commotion turns to shouting, shouting and singing. Suddenly people are shedding themselves of their cloaks and they're laying them on the road in front of him. According to Matthew's gospel, they're, they're taking off branches from roadside palms and they're laying those down on the ground as well. A chant begins to materialize and then almost with one voice the masses repeat, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But what king? What peace? What kind of king rides to town on a donkey? And what kind of a peace can there be when there's no sign of any army? Where are the flags? Where are the banners? Where's the pomp and circumstance? Where are the soldiers? Where are the swords that are going to deal that stinging blow to one of the most powerful empires the world has ever known? And who is this guy on the colt? It was clear that some thought he was a king. Matthew's gospel says people walking in front of him and behind him were shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They probably didn't realize it at the time, but the shouts of the people were were right on. They were spot on. This was the promised son of David. This is the one who had been prophesied about so many times and so many years before. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one from the line of David who would bring salvation and deliverance. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of in chapter 62 where he writes, go through, go through the gates, Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold your salvation comes. Behold his reward is with him, his recompense is before him. This is the one of whom the prophet Zechariah spoke of in chapter nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout to the Lord, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's a connection. Surely some of the crowd knew that this is the way the Savior would come. Could it be that this is he? But before we begin to assume that all of this was clear in their minds, we need to step back and consider, consider the fog, this, this pervasive confusion that ruled the day. In Matthew 21.10, we're told that as soon as Jesus entered the city, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who's this guy? It's as if They enter the city, and all the frenzy begins to subside, and all of a sudden, they're not so certain that this guy is the guy that they thought he was. 
The prevailing answer among the crowd is this, Matthew 21, 11. Well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In other words, we're not exactly sure who he is, but we know that he's a prophet and we know where he's from. They went from jubilantly shouting praises and letting a donkey trample their coats to uncertainty in a matter of hours, maybe minutes, but it doesn't stop there. From here, we see a slippery slope just turn into just a a, a dead drop, only days later. The frenzied cries of the people, they, they transform from Hosanna to the son of David to crucify him. Just as soon as the euphoria clears, the people begin become absolutely convinced this man couldn't possibly be the savior that they had been waiting for. And for falsely leading us to believe that, well, he deserves to die. What happened here? Was this a failure to launch? Did Jesus plan to come in and save these people, just fall apart on him when he entered Jerusalem? This was supposed to be a triumphal entry, right? And that's what our Bibles tell us with those chapter titles, right? It doesn't seem to end in triumph, does it? And when we read a little bit further on in Luke 19, verse 41, that certainly doesn't sound like the response of a victorious, triumphant king. What does Jesus do? When he draw near and saw the city, he wept over it. This looks a whole lot more like the beginning of a tragedy than a moment of triumph. It looks more like Jesus is facing the reality of failure than the promise of success. Were Jesus' tears shed because he he so wanted to help these people, but it was just beginning to become clear that they weren't going to accept him the way he wanted them to accept them. They they were going to resist him. They might even reject him. Is that why Jesus was crying? Was Jesus grieved because his wonderful plan for them was looking like it was going to fail? Like some political candidate who's you know, in that room with all the balloons ready to go, and then he's seeing the poll numbers come in, and they're starting to lean. Oh, no, they're going heavily in the direction of the other opponent. It's, just, it, it's looking like it's over. This, is, this looks like it's the end of the road. Well, we had a good run. It was fun to dream. Is that what's going on here? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And in the next few moments, I'd like to banish that thought from our minds by pointing us in the direction of who Jesus really is, the sovereign and merciful King and Savior of the world. Rather than point to failure, Jesus' journey into Jerusalem, it shows Jesus to be magnificently sovereign and matchlessly merciful. Let's first take a look at Jesus' sovereignty here. First of all, Jesus is unlike any other human being that has ever lived in that circumstances don't control him. He controls them. Jesus' sovereignty is seen in his control. As Jesus is drawing near to Bethphage and Bethany, he sends his disciples on an errand. 
In his omniscience, his all-knowingness, Jesus knows that there will be tied up a donkey and her colt. He says in Matthew 21, go into the village in front of you, immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And he tells these two men to go out and bring back both. And not only does he tell them to go get the animals, but he also tells the men that there's a chance that you're going to be questioned. Uh, Here's what you say. Not only does he tell them what to say, he tells them what the response is going to be. He knows how people are going to respond once his disciples say what he tells them to say. 21.3 in Matthew, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And that's incredible. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen, but the control Jesus has goes far beyond just knowing the location of donkeys and what to say when someone questions you for borrowing them. By giving this command, Jesus, he knowingly initiates his coronation, which would set in motion events leading up to his death. Throughout the Gospel of John, our attention is drawn to the fact that Jesus knew that there was a right time for certain events to transpire. In John 2, 4, Jesus said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. I've said that to my mom so many times. It's not time. Right, mom? My hour has not not yet come. In, In John 7, 6, he says to his brother, brothers, my time has not yet come. In 7.30, no one lays a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In 8.20, they don't arrest Jesus because his hour had not yet come. But then, John records right after Jesus enters Jerusalem on that colt, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus' life was not a mystery to him. He didn't walk through it blindly like we do, not knowing what might be lurking around the next corner or when it will happen. Jesus knew what was coming and when it would come. And not only did Jesus know when the right time was, he was in control of the events that would take place when that time had come. In John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes it, talking about his life, No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Even in death, he would be in control. No one could take his life from him. His death on the cross would be an absolutely voluntary sacrifice for the sake of others. And even in death, he possessed the power, the control he needed to take his life back up again. That's power. That's control. Jesus' sovereign, his sovereignty is seen in his control. It's also seen in what people saw him do. Jesus' sovereignty, it's seen in his works. We see that in Luke 19, 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praised God with loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. For three years, 
people had had an up-close and personal look as Jesus did things that defied human ability. And that's why when they saw him riding on that colt, they were able to put two and two together and were moved to begin praising God. And Jesus had, had made the blind to see. He had made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, His healing touch, it cleansed lepers. No one could do that. His voice had calmed storms and cast out demons. His body defied the laws of physics and walked upon the water. And a prayer of thanksgiving to heaven turned a couple fish and a few pieces of bread into food that satisfied thousands. This is amazing. There was no question that Jesus had the power to do the miraculous. If he had desired, he could have overthrown Rome. Snap of his fingers. Done. He could have opened the eyes to the masses to see the blazing glory of his divine nature without effort. Jesus is sovereign. His sovereignty is seen in his control. It's seen in his works. It's also seen in the necessary praise of his glory. Jordan read it just a little bit ago, Luke 19, 39. Some of the Pharisees interrupt that celebration to confront Jesus. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In not so many words, they're saying, Jesus, you know what these people are saying about you is not true. You don't want, you don't want to be guilty of allowing them to think that you could actually be God's anointed one. And Jesus replies, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these people don't praise me for who I am, the immobile, lifeless, voiceless stones will be forced to do it. He's sovereign. He's the one who created all things. And he is the one for whom all things have been created. Colossians 1.16. He doesn't need human beings to recognize his glory. In fact, if we don't accept that privilege of praising him for who he is, the rest of creation is going to do it. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Jesus is sovereign. See it in his control, in his works, in the necessary praise of his glory. The people were right when they shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. That's exactly who he was. Only he didn't need people to declare him king. He didn't need all of this commotion around him and these people to rise up and say, this is our king. He didn't need that. His kingship was appointed by God. Isaiah prophesied about him in 9-7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus isn't a king by the will of the people. He's a king because of the will of God. 
And unlike any earthly king, he's not a king with borders or limitations. There are no opposing powers that keep him in check. There are no time restrictions. There are no limits on resources. And there's no comparison to the radiant beauty of his glory. You know, the people may have been wading through some type of fog. We've seen Jesus do incredible things, so there must be something special about him. But you know, he's not quite doing the things that we think that he should be doing or that a savior should be doing, so he, he must not be the one that we've been waiting for. But standing on the other side, as we do, in the vantage point that we have been given, it's clear that Jesus was the sovereign king. The events that would take place following Palm Sunday were not evidence of failure. If Jesus had come to deliver the people from Roman rule, well then that's that's a different story. But the reality is, Jesus had come to deliver people from something far more dangerous, far more sinister, and far more destructive than the tyranny of a foreign power. He came to deliver them from the grip of their own sin and the imminent ferocious punishment that was coming from a holy God that by his very nature can't tolerate sin. The events that were about to transpire, they were no surprise to Jesus. In fact, they would fall into place exactly as planned. Not long before, Jesus had told his disciples in Luke 18, 31, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered up to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The crowds, the religious leaders, even the 12, understood not much at that time. They didn't understand what was going on. They were singing songs. They were going through the motions. But Jesus knew that the week ahead was what had been planned before the creation of the world. The betrayal the mocking, the spitting, the flogging, the brutal murderous end, all of it was necessary for what he came to accomplish. And even in the midst of what would appear as failure to so many, his sovereignty remained untouched for nothing that was about to happen was outside of his control. On the contrary, his death and resurrection from the dead would be his greatest works and would result in even greater praise. Jesus is sovereign. It's awesome. It's beautiful. The crowd was looking for conquest, but Jesus was on a mission of mercy. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. This was a rescue. 
a sacred act of selfless, sacrificial love that would result in salvation. If the sovereignty of Jesus leads us to marvel at his majesty, then the mercy we see put on display, it's gotta leave us just completely humbled and overwhelmed and astonished. Where do we see the mercy of Jesus in Luke 19? We see it in his tears. We see it in his tears. Jesus nears the city. He wept over it. Luke 19.41 says, why, did, why does he weep? We already said that Jesus was in control, right? He's sovereign. Don't sovereignty and strength go hand in hand? And isn't weakness, isn't, isn't weeping closely related to weakness? Not necessarily. As Jesus weeps, we see another beautiful aspect of his character. Yes, he's in control. Yes, he, he's powerful and he's strong. Yes, he will get the praise that is due to him. Yes, he knows that everything is and will go exactly according to plan. And yet he's filled with sorrow for the suffering of others. Shouldn't a sovereign king be unmoved, just kind of cold and unfeeling? Well, a selfish one, a narcissist who cares only for himself, but that's not Jesus. The whole reason for his coming, we're told in John 3, 16, is because of God's great love for the world. And Jesus is far superior than any earthly king because not only is his power perfect, but also his compassion. Luke 19, 41 and 42 says, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Even in the midst of celebration and the shouts of praise and adulation for the son of David, Jesus' mercy is put on display as he weeps for a people who just don't get it. They're blinded by, by thick fog. They're celebrating the arrival of the one that they think will bring them peace, but they don't know the kind of peace that they really need or what it's going to take to bring about that peace. And Jesus weeps. He weeps for people who have no idea that the things that make for peace and from the verses that follow, we see that he also weeps because they have no idea of the suffering Jerusalem will endure and the lives that will be lost when the Romans lay siege to it in the near future. Jesus weeps. Does your heart break for those around you who are suffering, who are lost in a fog, those who go through life experiencing pain, and heartbreak without knowing the hope and peace that are found in Jesus Christ. If your heart doesn't break, pay attention to Jesus. Sovereign King who is moved to the point of tears when he sees people who are perishing. One pastor put it very bluntly. He said, if you haven't shed any tears for somebody's losses but your own, it probably means you're pretty wrapped up in yourself. 
I think that's been true of me at times. Our prayer needs to be that God would soften our hearts so that they might be moved by the suffering of others. Jesus' mercy is seen in his tears. One one last thing. His mercy is also seen in his self-denial. We already pointed out, Jesus knows what his trip into Jerusalem meant for him. He knew what would happen in the next few days. The Son of Man will be delivered up, and they will kill him. Suffering was not something that he looked forward to with excitement. And we know that from the prayer he prayed in the garden. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. The days ahead, they were going to be brutal. And yet he would willingly endure all of it for the long-term joy it would bring. And in an ultimate act of self-denial, Jesus would put on display God's great mercy for humanity by laying down his life to pay for human sin. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And Jesus raised the bar, didn't he? We thought we had an idea of what love is, but Jesus showed us what love really is by laying down his life. And his life was pure, it was spotless, it was infinitely valuable. And he laid it down for us, for you, and for me. Do you want to be like Jesus? Jesus' heart not only broke for lost people, despite great loss to himself, his love for them meant moving toward meeting their need. Following Jesus means willingly laying down our our pleasure, our comfort, our security for the sake of others. We don't just feel sorry for others. Our tears, like those of Jesus, need to be tears shed as we move toward need. We don't just feel, we do, even when it means great cost to ourselves. Where is the merciful self-denial of Jesus being put on display in your own life, in my life? How, How are we laying down our lives for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers? How are we showing the love of Christ in our homes? Do we put on a good show in front of people at church only to turn right around and demand our rights with our families and our spouses? Let's get back to Jesus. The fog was thick that day and the people were praising God, celebrating Jesus at one moment, then unsure about who he was the next. They wanted peace, but they had no idea of the peace that Jesus had come to bring or how it would be achieved. They had no idea their chance of praise would turn into chants and cries for crucifixion. And they had no idea that that was precisely what was necessary for God's plan of salvation. But we're on the other side of this, that most crucial climactic week in human history, let's make sure that we don't fall into a similar confusion of fooling ourselves into thinking that Jesus is anything other than who he really is 
or came to bring us and give us anything other than what he really came to give us. Because to do so is to tragically think him to be something far less glorious and majestic than he really is. See, it's possible to say the words and sing the songs and pray the prayers and go through all the right motions and not know the Savior. Do we really know him? To know the Savior is to know him as the sovereign king who in his sovereignty mercifully humbled himself to provide not what we think we need, but what we most greatly need, the one and only way to be forgiven our sins and made right with God. Let's marvel at the beauty of Christ this week. Let's be completely blown away, recognizing, admiring, and worshiping him for who he is, the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign ruler of all, the one we were created by and for, and the one whose unparalleled mercy was put on display through tears that he shed as he rode to meet our greatest need. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.